Uh, so I think all of us have had people or maybe have had things that happen in your life in that moment where you were very grateful. Maybe you couldn't repay back the person uh, who maybe had a mentor, a teacher, someone who's heavily invested in you. Uh, there was a guy named John who, when I was a seventh grader, uh, he, he was a college student at NC State at the time. He started serving at the church that I grew up in. And every year that me and my friends got a year older, he would serve at the, the age group that we were. And so he spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources on loving us and sharing the gospel and showing us tangibly who Jesus is. In fact, at one point in high school, a bunch of us were hanging out. It was after an event or something. And so we all went to go get food and he paid for all of us. And I'm like, Dude, you always do that. The church like has to give you a credit card or something. Like that's the only reason that you actually like spend this money on us. And he was like, "Yeah, you're right. The church actually has He wasn't on staff, but he, you know, he spent a lot of time with us. So they gave me a card so that I can do stuff like this. And I said, "I knew it. I knew you didn't actually like spend all this money all this time because you already spent a lot of time. Like that's a lot." To which you said, "No, nah, I'm just kidding. That's my own card." I said, "Give me that card." And I looked at it. It was his own card. And so, and, so, and so he was a big influence in my life. In college, he was the one that picked me up and let me know, if you're familiar with my story, uh, that my dad had died. He ended up being the best man in my wedding. Somebody who I could never thank enough had a profound impact on me. And there's nothing I could really do to thank them for all they have meant to me. And I share that because today we're going to do it a little bit, things a little bit different. When we take communion, we're celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, whatever wordage you're familiar with, as a reminder of what Christ has done for us. There's no amount of earning it. There's no amount of being a good person. There's literally nothing you and I could do to earn the grace and mercy of God that he has given to us, and we celebrate that in communion. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, if you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you, and if you do not own a Bible, you can take that one home. It is our gift to you. We are in a series called Masterclass, where we've been most of this year going through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is basically showing us, he's writing to the church in Corinth in modern-day Greece, and he's kind of showing us how the gospel impacts every single area of our lives. And today he gets to communion. Uh, if you were with us last week, beginning of chapter 11 through the next few passages we're going to look at, Paul is essentially addressing in this part of 1 Corinthians um, order and worship services. And so they have been doing some things that uh, weren't going very well. If you were here last week, that was a crazy passage. So you can go and listen to it if you were not, because I'm not teaching that one again. Uh, and there were some distracting things going on with women. That's all I'm going to give you. Go listen to it if you missed it. Uh, this week, uh, we're talking about communion. He is addressing communion to this church because they were taking it and celebrating it in a manner that was not a worthy and honorable to God or to the people around them. And so to give you a little bit of context of what this would have meant to them, uh, in the early church, most of the time, although not always, but often communion was, uh, in, was taken in connection with a meal. So they typically did it a little bit differently than we do it now, where they would have what's called a love feast. Now, I get it, that sounds weird in our culture today. I promise there is nothing weird about it. But they would come together, and at this feast, they would kind of re, uh, redo the Last Supper, redo the communion. So it actually would take, in the it would take place in the course of a meal as an imitation of the Last Supper. Now, if, you were, if you're not familiar with communion, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But just to give you some context, it was the last meal that Jesus took with his disciples before he was betrayed, killed on a cross, and then resurrected three days later. And so he has this meal with his disciples. He's explaining to them what's going on. This bread and this wine are, representat are representatives of my blood and my body that's going to be broken and poured out for you. They didn't fully understand what he was talking about, but this was the first the Lord's Supper, the last supper. 
Supper, the first communion. And what's interesting to me about communion, you may not be familiar with this, is that all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is making claims to divinity. Now, he never actually says, I am God. So some people will say, well, he never actually claimed to be God. But if you were a first century Jew, time and time and time again, he's making claims of divinity through his actions and his words. In fact, that is what got him arrested from the Jewish leaders was blasphemy. And communion was just another proclamation that I am God. In other words, communion took place, the first last supper, well, I guess the last last supper, you know what I mean, took place during Passover, which was not a random time this happened to be. In Jerusalem, the Israelites or the Jews were coming together. Many people would make pilgrimages at this, uh, pilgrimages at this time of year to celebrate Passover. Now, Passover was basically a celebration, a remembrance of when the Israelites were captives in Egypt, that God essentially passed over judgment on the, Israel, uh, on the Israelites and judged the Egyptians as one of the ways that they would finally free the Israelites. And so the Jews would come together to celebrate the Passover to remember God's faithfulness. And what Jesus is doing is he's repurposing this Passover meal for his disciples. He's essentially telling them that I was the one that partook in the first Passover, that it was me, that I was there, that I overlooked your sins and the things that you were doing and judged the Egyptians. And so the communion, when we celebrate it, is God saying that I'm going to repurpose the Passover. And now the new Passover communion is a reminder of me passing over your sins. That if you place your faith and trust in Christ, it's not about being a good person or doing all the right things. That in communion, we get to celebrate the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And so that being said, here's what he says, starting in verse 17. It says this, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper, so the one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. So again, communion often accompanied a meal. And what was probably ha- what was happening is that they were celebrating communion in a way that was not Christ-like. So what would typically happen is that those who were wealthy or had uh, more resources would be the ones that would bring the meal, the, ju- uh, the, the wine, the bread, and the meal. Those who were poor would not most often not bring anything because they couldn't afford it. But regardless of who brought what, when it actually came time to partake the meal together, everyone was supposed to partake equally. And what seems to be happening is that some of the wealthy people that were bringing the supplies were eating so much of the food that some of the poor people couldn't eat anything. In fact, some of them were drinking so much wine that they were getting drunk, while others could not drink anything at all. See, they were supposed to equally share among one another as a reminder of what Christ has done for us, but what they were doing is that they were participating in communion in a way that did not honor Christ, in a way that shamed other people. And Paul's point was simply this, that don't do this, don't act like this, that communion is a reminder that God loves all of us equally, and he goes on to say later that if you're so hungry or thirsty or whatever it is, then you need to eat at home before you come so that you can ensure that everybody gets to partake from this communion meal equally. In other words, here's what we need to know from this text, particularly when it comes to the Lord's Supper, and that's this, that everyone is equal before God. 
When we stand before the Lord, it doesn't matter who you are, what you have done, where you live, your ethnicity, your gender, none of those things matter. That we all get equal footing, all equally are loved and accepted by Christ. And if you are in Christ, he does not love anyone more than anybody else. Now, if you've been a follower of Christ, maybe you've been going to church for a while, and I say everyone is equal before the Lord, before God, you think, yeah, that's not really rocket science. I kind of already know that. But here's the thing. If we're not careful, although we kind of know this intellectually, oftentimes we don't believe it. So let me give you an example. Uh, maybe you think, sometimes we think if we're not careful, that the people that, yes, God loves all of us equally, equally, but if you're a really good person and you like do stuff you're supposed to do and you've got good character integrity, we assume that God probably loves you a little bit more equally or he loves you a little bit more. Like for example, here's how I, I know we, we think this. Whenever something happens that's unfortunate to somebody who we think is a really good person, we get upset or we feel saddened, not just that they are going through an unfortunate situation, but we assume that it's not fair. That yes, we don't want anyone to go through what they might be going through, but it's really not fair for them to be going through it. Why? Because they're a really good person. Okay, we subconsciously think that all God, although God loves us equally, he probably loves people that are good a little bit more. Or maybe another way, maybe you see people who live the life that you have, maybe they have the family you wish you had, the job you wish you had, the house, the car, the financial income, whatever it is, it can be easy for us to assume that the people that have the life that you wish you had but don't, God must have favor on them, love them in ways he does not love you, otherwise you would have what they have. Right? We subconsciously think that we're not all actually equal before God, and a com communion is a, is a loud reminder that that is not true, that before Jesus, everyone is equal before him. That is what the gospel says. In fact, uh, a few months ago, I was in Orlando in July for the Acts 29 Global ga Gathering. Acts 29 is the church play network that New City is a part of, 800 churches in over 53 countries, and so it happens every two years, and it was awesome. We had over 45 people from 45 different countries there, different ethnicities, different worship styles, different languages being spoken. It was awesome. And at one point uh, during one of the sessions, uh, one of the pastors, uh, pa a white pastor from Johannesburg, South Africa, is preaching, and he's, he's explaining how, uh, just like America has its own history of racism with slavery, Jim Crow, all that sort of thing, although it's technically over, we still feel the effects of it. It's the same thing in South Africa. They have the apartheid, and although it's technically over, they still feel the effects of it, right? You can see housing developments and where people live. It's highly segregated based on race. Uh, schools that the kids go to, highly segregated based on race. Income levels, highly segregated based on race. And so he's a white pastor. Their church is doing this outreach in a black neighborhood. And at the end of the night, they did a worship service. And he's preaching the gospel, again, sharing that God loves all equally without fault in Christ. And at the end of the service, an older black man comes up to him with tears streaming down his face. And he says, I want you to know that tonight is the first time in my entire life that I have ever been told that my skin color is not a result of sin and that it's not a mistake. This is the gospel, that everybody is equal before God. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, uh, Paul, who also writes Galatians, he says this. It'll be on the screen. Uh, for, those who, uh, for those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. In other words, those of you who have fallen, uh, followed and trusted in Jesus, not in your own works of being a good person, but believed in Jesus for your sins, if you've done that, then this is what this means for you, that there is no Jew or Greek slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed 
heirs. In other words, he's not saying that once you become a Christian, your gender goes away, your traditions go away, your ethnicity goes away. He's not saying that, that in Christ we have a beautiful diversity. But when it comes to your standing before God, there is no difference. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've lived, what you have done. We have all equal access to God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. This is what communion is supposed to represent, but the Corinthians were taking it in a way that did not show this. And so Paul continues uh, by saying this, Uh, In verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. So again, he's at the Passover meal with his disciples explaining what's going to happen, although they don't fully understand. And then he says one of them is going to betray him. Later on, one of his disciples, Judas, gets up, leaves the room. After the disciples take the meal together, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying really late at night. Judas leads some Roman soldiers to Jesus. They arrest him in the middle of the night so there would not be a public outcry. He goes through a series of illegal trials and is ultimately crucified on Friday uh, afternoon. And so that's what's happening. So the night before that this is all going to go down, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, communion is both a symbol and a reminder that we do until Christ comes again. It's a symbol of the sacrificial death of what Christ has done for us and the reminder that he has defeated death and so that all who partake, who are followers of him, get the grace and mercy of God, not because of you deserved it, but because of what Christ has done for us. Now, what's interesting is that when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that in the first century culture, remembering meant something different than what it means to us today. So, for example, if I were to tell you to remember your high school graduation, what would you do? You'd probably sit there and you'd think about it. Maybe good thoughts, maybe bad thoughts, I don't know. But that's probably the extent of what we do, what we think of when we say remember. In the first century, remembering for them was not just something you thought about, it was something you do. So if you were at Corinth while they were reading this letter and Paul says, I want you to remember your high school graduation, what they would have done is they would have gone home, gotten their caps and gowns, and kind of redone another ceremony because remembering was not just thinking, it was doing, which is why communion is not just something we think about, it's something that we go and do. In other words, communion is a proclamation of what Christ has done for us. It's not about you trying really hard and with your effort and God's love, if he feels like he's in a good mood that day, he'll give you the grace and mercy you deserve. No, it's a proclamation that God, not because he needed us, gladly laid down his life out of grace and mercy and love for us. And we take communion as a tangible reminder of that. Now, you probably also have tangible reminders of things that you've done, whether, it is a, uh, whether it's a, a picture, a token, or whatever it is. You probably have things like I do that helps you remember maybe God's faithfulness in your life or maybe just things that you are fond of. Uh, so, for example, in my office, I have two pictures of things that remind me of God's faithfulness through two of the most difficult things that I've experienced. The first one is this. Uh, this is the launch day of New City Church in uh, April 2nd of 2017. 
As you can tell, things have changed a little bit, but looking at this picture reminds me of the times we wanted to quit, the times we never thought that this day would actually happen, that God is good and is faithful. It is not a promise that everything that I want to do or everything that you want to do will work out the way that you want it to work out. But when I see that when I'm discouraged, I say, look what God did. It's a tangible, tangible reminder of God's faithfulness in my life. Here's the second picture that I have in my office, and it's of my father. Now, if you're familiar with my story, uh, you know that when I was 19 years old, my dad died. And so this is a reminder of this is a reminder of two things for me. Number one, it's a reminder because unlike uh, many of my friends that were my age and that, that grew up around the time I did, who said, I don't really know the man or husband or father I want to be. I just know I want to be the exact opposite of my dad. To me, it's a reminder of, man, if I could just be half the father and the husband that he is, then I could be doing okay. That when I'm difficult, when I've had an argument with Christina, that I can be reminded, say, what would he have done? What advice would he give me? It's a reminder of his goodness of, of my dad's in my life. And it's also a reminder of God's faithfulness to the most difficult thing that I and my family have ever had to walk, to, walk through, of our church family, of our friends that came alongside of us and loved us through an extremely difficult time. These pictures are a reminder of God's faithfulness in my life. And ultimately, this is what communion is supposed to be for us. That it's not about you, it's about him. And he gladly gave up himself to make it possible for you and I to have a relationship with him. And so because of that, communion is supposed to be something that is shared equally and done lovingly together. But here's what was going on. Verse 27, it says this. So then, whoever eats the bread and drink, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, there's a, way to take a, there's a way to take communion that is right and good, and there's a way to take communion that is not right and good. And so they were taking it, and apparently, in an unworthy manner. Think of it this way, right? If you do something, if you, let's say you're driving, right? There are rules and regulations for how you're supposed to drive. And if you follow those rules, if you obey the speed limit and you don't get in trouble, you, you drive in a worthy manner, everything's fine. If you drive in an unworthy manner and happen to get caught, things are not so fine for you, right? So let me give you my only mistake I've ever made uh, as a driver, which I don't think should count. I have never gotten a speeding ticket, and I have never been in an accident. That's my fault. The only blemish I ever had, the only time that I possibly potentially drove in an unworthy manner that I got for, caught for it, was when I was 17 years old. And to this day, I'm convinced he only gave me a ticket because I was 17 years old. It was nighttime. It was raining. It was dark. I was in my friend's neighborhood. And they have a three-way stop, which are the dumbest things ever. There should not be a three-way stop. There should be one stop sign, and the other traffic can just go, right? But there's a three-way stop. Nobody was ever there. And so what did I do? Like any normal human being, I got to the stop sign, slowed down very slowly, and I kept going. Because why would you stop for no reason? Well, there was, apparently there was a police officer sitting nearby, and he saw me not stop for no reason. He pulls me over, gives me a ticket. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever. So I'm upset about this. I'm like, you only, you only gave it to me because I'm 17. About a month later or whenever it was, I go with my dad to court. We're trying to get it. You get a prayer for judgment. If you have a good driving record, you get a, you, you, whatever. You get like a one forgiven token, whatever you want to call it. I don't even know. But it was important because I was 17, and this went on my record. My insurance would have gone up. That would not have been good. So we go to court, hopefully hoping that he'll you know, let me off the hook. And, I'm, and so I'm, I'm like, still, the whole day, I'm like, this is dumb. And then I get there, and I don't know if I still do it this way, because, again, I don't ever do this anymore. Uh, there was, they had all these pages printed out of people that were there for traffic violations. And there was like 300 of them, and I went through the list, and I was, sure enough, the only one there for failure to stop at a stop sign. So I'm like, this is bogus. I shouldn't be here. So I'm even more upset. 
Uh, we get, go in the courtroom, whatever, it's our turn. He says, Mr. Dotson, so my, I go up with my dad. And I'm mad. I don't, I'm upset, but like, I still do not know what possessed me to say this. I'm like, I don't know. But he says, Mr. Dotson, I see that you ran a stop sign. And I, to which I reply, no, sir, I just didn't completely stop. And I'm like, oh, no, like, what did I just, like, come back, come back, come back. To which he replies, okay, well, just don't do it again, prayer for judgment. And I'm like, yes, I drove in an unworthy manner, I spoke in an unworthy manner, and everything was okay, okay? So I got through it. However, that's not what the Corinthians were doing, right? The Corinthians were taking communion in an unworthy manner, and it was bringing judgment upon them because they were sinning against the body, that's Christ's body, and the Lord. And so he says this, verse 28. He says, let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, if we were examining and taking this in a proper manner, we would not be falling under judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. In other words, when God does do things and discipline us in our lives, it's because he loves us. It's not out of spite. He does it so that we might not be condemned by the world or with the world. In other words, he still faithfully loves us in the midst of us falling short. Paul's point here is this, and here's what we really need to know, or sorry, we really need to do, particularly when it comes to communion. You need to examine yourself before the Lord. He's calling us to examine ourselves, that, that we're supposed to uh, take some time to confess maybe any, any sin that's going on in our life, anything that's going on in our life that we need to, we need to not just go through the motions, that we need to sit and confess and, and come to God so that we can take communion in a worthy manner. Uh, and what's going on here, you might be thinking, well, uh, you know, as I read this, um, they, we must be in a good, good spot, right? Because they were not sharing, apparently. Some people were getting drunk. Well, at New City Church, we don't do it that way, right? We don't do that. Everyone kind of takes an equal share. I think for us, here's what Paul would say. I think Paul would say this when it comes to what does it mean for us to examine ourselves before the Lord? I think in our culture and how we do it, it's very easy for us to kind of just go through the motions because we just take communion. It's something that you do. and We, we give no thought to it. We don't take any time to say, God, is there anything in my life I need to bring before you? Is there anything in my life that I'm struggling with? Like for us, communion can become a highly trivial, highly something that we just do to go through the motions. And I think Paul would say, maybe you're not like doing it as bad as they are. You're not sinning. Everyone's getting to take equally, but you're still missing the point that God himself has come to give you the ability to experience grace and forgiveness, that he gave his body and his blood for you. And so before we take communion, we need to take a minute and confess any sin and thank God for the goodness in his, uh, that he's given us in our lives. Because if we don't do that, then we're going to miss out on all that communion can and be for us. We need to examine ourselves before the Lord. And here's why, too, because if you don't take time to communion or whatever it is, to actually examine what you're doing that might lead to things not going the way you want them to go. So let me just give you an example uh, of a time that I probably should have taken some more time to get the situation before I took action. Uh, the first date I ever took Christine and my wife on uh, was we were freshmen in college, and uh, I didn't have a smartphone at this time. I also didn't have a GPS, um, but I looked up a restaurant, you know, because me, as you're about to find out, I'm just a helpless romantic. Like, I just, you know, gotta, gotta, things got to be worked out right, right? So I go online, and I find this, like, nice Italian restaurant not too far from campus, and I'm like, we're going to go there. And I pick her up, we get in the car, and I get lost. 
I got lost, right? I didn't take enough time to actually plan out where I was, like, make sure I knew where I was going. But again, me knowing, hey, if we ever get married one day, like, we're going to look back on our first date, and I want it to be significant and special. Like, I got to take her somewhere nice, because again, that's just who I am. We went to Chili's. <laughs> Took my baby to Chili's, right? Great move, right? And I got, it gets better. Again, I probably should have taken some more time to kind of figure out what, how this was actually going to go down. After Chili's, we went to the beach, Nighttime, moonlight, it's, it's romantic. Again, we were at college at UNC Wilmington. And we're talking, and towards the end of the conversation, I look at her, and I say, well, I really like you, and I don't think anything's going to change, so do you want to be my girlfriend? Again, just a oh, heartthrob heart right there, right? But you laugh. I, I probably should have taken a little bit more time to make sure I knew where I was going, and if I was going to ask her to be my girlfriend, to like maybe not make it so lame, right? I should examine myself. And that's what Paul is saying for us to do here, that before we do something that seems ritualistic and seems like we do this all the time, that we take a moment and reflect on what God has done in our lives. Because here's why. He concludes by saying this uh, in verse 33. He says, therefore, uh, my brothers and sisters, uh, when you come together, or, wel- or he says, welcome one another. In other words, that wait for one another, love one another, serve one another. Don't take the meal until everybody gets there, and then share it equally. Uh, verse 34, if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about other matters whenever I come. In other words, eat together, eat it, like, so that you can partake equally. If you're hungry, don't come eating all the food. Share equally, welcome one another. Again, his point is this, that, that this is not just a normal meal. This is not something we go through the motions for. This is something radically significant about the grace of God in our lives. We need to examine ourselves, and here's why. Because Jesus welcomes you to his table. This is why you need to examine yourself. I need to examine myself, because I think think this is what often happens. If we're not careful, we kind of assume, we know that God loves everybody equally. He, He cares for everybody. He died for everybody. The invitation is for everyone. But then we think about ourselves, and we think, but I'm kind of worse than other people, right? Like, I have bad thoughts. I have bad motivations. Like, I know all the issues I have that other people don't know about me. And we can sometimes assume that God loves everybody, but he might not love me, right? And what we need to remember is that the communion is Jesus not just welcoming everybody. It's Jesus welcoming you. He is welcoming you. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do it a little bit different uh, than normal. We're going to take a second, and we're going to examine ourselves, and then we're going to partake. Uh, and we can examine, you can take some time to examine yourself in one of three ways. You can confess, any, in just in your seed, any sin before the Lord that you need to be honest with and repent of. Maybe you've got something going on in your life, or a life in the friend or a family member, that you just want to take a moment and pray and give it to the Lord. Or maybe you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing. Maybe you need to take the next few moments and just ask God to reveal, to move in your life, to show you the grace and mercy that he has for you. So we're going to take a few minutes, whether you want to close your eyes or bow your head, whatever you want to do. And I know this might feel a little awkward because in our culture today, we're always going, right? We've got, we've got a podcast on, music on, TV in the background. Like We don't just sit. We're going to sit for just a second. We're going to examine ourselves, and then we're going to take what's interesting is that this is exactly what the disciples did the night that they took the communion for the first time, although that wasn't their intention. Here's what I mean. Right before Jesus broke the bread and passed the cup, he said, one of you in this room is going to betray me. 
At which point all the disciples, except for Judas probably, were thinking, well, maybe he was going along for a second, saying, not me, like, not me, I'm not going to do it. And they all make these grand promises, like Peter, one of the, the foundational leader of the disciples, says, I would never do that. And then 12 hours later, he actually does something he promises Jesus he would never do. Right? So they're all examining, is it me? Is it me? And so what I want us to do is I want to take a second and just examine. Again, any unconfessed sin, anything that you need to ask God to do in your life or someone you love, or maybe you just want to ask God to encourage you uh, to, for you to feel his presence and his spirit, maybe for the first time or for the first time in a while. So we're going to do that for just a minute, and then we're going to take.